I mean, more or less play, not more or less myself. Well, maybe that too. Would you open your Bible, please, to Exodus chapter 17 and 18. As we come once more to the deliverance of the people of Israel from their bondage in Egypt. Today we're going to be looking at both of these chapters, so we don't have time really to read the full text. But we'll be dealing with it all as we think about Israel's experience in Rephidim. You may recall that following their redemption and deliverance from Egypt, the Israelites faced a series of experiences which served as tests for them. Immediately after they were delivered by God's mighty power at the Red Sea, they went into the wilderness of Shur, you may recall. And there was no water there in the wilderness of Shur. It seems to me that the name of the wilderness indicates to us that these were Norwegian Jews. As they entered in, they said, Yah, sure. And through the, the centuries, the Yah has been dropped and just leaving the shore behind. There was no water there, and eventually they came to a place called Merah where there was bitter water. And so after having no water, they had water, but they couldn't drink it. It was brackish. A severe test of their faith, which they didn't pass with flying colors. And yet God directed that a tree should be hewn down and thrown into the water, and it sweetened it, God provided for their needs. From there in chapter 16, they went on into the wilderness of sin. There they suffered hunger, so much so that they longed to return to Egypt with its onions and leeks and garlics and melons. Some of that sounds all right to me, some of it doesn't sound too good. But that was the part of the diet that they were missing, the spices, the taste of that food down there in Egypt. And they said, did you bring us out here in the wilderness to die? Weren't there enough graves in Egypt? Again, they didn't pass the test very well as God put them to the test. And yet God provided for them, didn't he? Graciously, God gave them manna, that bread from heaven, and he sent quail to them so that they would have that meat to eat. When you and I don't learn our lessons the first time around, what do you think God does? Well, that's right. He designs new trials or tests, sometimes with strikingly familiar circumstances. It's almost deja vu. And the purpose of it is that he might test us again. Keep in mind that the trials that God puts us through are trials to test us. But more than that, they are sent to train us at the same time. God is not so concerned with the comfort of his people's circumstances as he is with the maturity of their faith. While Israel was encamped at this one site in Rephidim, there were three significant trials that surfaced, each of them providing a lesson for us to observe. The one trial dealt with a physical need. And there's some similarity here, isn't there? For there is lack of water in verses 1 through 7. It says at the end of verse 1, There was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. 
Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us our children and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? A little more, and they will stone me. So you can see how serious the situation actually was. Here is the trial of physical need. And then beginning in verse 8 through the end of the chapter, there is a trial that comes from an enemy attack. It says in verse 8, Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses took some action. And then in chapter 18, there's a third trial of a different sort. It is the trial of overloaded leadership. Now, with God's help, we want to look at each of these trials this morning and see what lessons we can glean for our lives. The first one deals with the smitten rock, for that was how God provided the water on that occasion. The Lord said to Moses, verse 5, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The smitten rock. We see here once more the sad tendency of the human heart, a heart like you have and like I have, to distrust God, even after He has done so much for us. God here graciously provided for the physical need of His people, even though, again, their complaint exposed their lack of faith. In providing in the way he did by the smitten rock, God also gave a type or a picture of Jesus Christ. For the smitten rock pictures to us our Lord and what he did that he might provide for our thirsty souls, that he might provide salvation for our spiritual need. Keeping your finger here, would you turn into the New Testament, please, to 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. In this passage, the Apostle Paul draws upon the experience of Moses and the Israelites to warn the Corinthians, to warn them about unbelief, about failing in the test. He reminds them of the spiritual privileges of the Israelites in verse 1. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Here we see baptism used in a non-literal sense. The word means to dip or to immerse. Thus we practice what we do in our church. But the word has a metaphorical meaning to identify with or to unite with. And that's the thought here where it says that these Israelites, by the experience of coming through the Red Sea, were united to Moses as their earthly leader. 
And it says in verse 3, and all ate the same spiritual food. The word spiritual here should probably be understood in the sense of supernatural. And so obviously he's talking about the manna, the quail that God provided. All ate of the same supernatural food. And all drank the same supernatural drink, that is the water that God supernaturally provided. For they were drinking from a supernatural rock which followed them. Now this was uh, a tradition of the rabbis of that day. That is that the rock that Moses hit in the wilderness actually followed them then throughout the wilderness journey. Now there is no historical evidence of that. That is merely a legend that the, the rabbis were teaching at that time. But Paul here is sort of picking up on that thought And he's saying, yes, in a sense, that rock did follow them. It was with them. Because, he says, the rock was Christ. Now, we believe in the literal interpretation of the Bible. But that doesn't mean that our Lord is a rock, like a piece of stone. The literal interpretation of the Bible means you take it in its normal sense. Obviously, here, the normal sense is a metaphor. Paul is speaking of our Lord as though he were a rock. Indeed, the very rock that Moses smote. He is saying that there is an identification factor between that, what happened there in the wilderness at Rephidim in Exodus chapter 17, and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says the rock was Christ. He was that supernatural rock. Now let's think of some parallels and in the, in, and think of how that rock was like our Lord. In the first place, that rock at Horeb was there by God's sovereign plan, His design. He is the one who put that rock there and then who led the people to that rock which Moses smote and then which burst forth with water. And so I would suggest to you that likewise, the rock, Christ, our Lord, was provided for us by God's sovereign plan. He was not created by the fanciful imaginations of some of his disciples or of the Apostle Paul. He was provided as the Lord and Savior come down from heaven by God himself. Secondly, that supernatural rock that God provided on both occasions had to be smitten. That rock in Moses' day had to be struck by the rod, by the staff of Moses, by God's divine order. Likewise, the rock, Jesus Christ, had to be smitten by divine order and for him to give forth eternal life. Isaiah the prophet says it beautifully, if you would turn there to Isaiah 53. He says in verse 4 of that 53rd chapter, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And that agrees with what it says in verse 10. But the Lord was pleased 
to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Isaiah is saying regarding the suffering Messiah that he describes in this chapter, that he was smitten by the divine order of God. Just as Moses took that rod which spoke of God's judgment and God's power in his hand and struck the rock, so by God's divine order, Jesus Christ was smitten and stricken by God. That as he suffered on that cross, he might suffer for you and for me and bear our sins in his body on the tree. Then there is a third parallel that I see, and it is this, that the rock was the source of God's gracious provision. It was water in Moses' day, but for us it is that water of life. It is salvation that Jesus Christ provides for us because he was smitten on our behalf. He, Christ, is the only source of the water of life. In the Gospel of John, on several occasions, he spoke about himself in that context. In chapter 4, you well remember the woman at the well to whom he offered water that if she drank of it, she would never thirst again, the water of life. In chapter 7, on a different occasion, he stood before the multitudes in Jerusalem on the last day of the great feast. And as uh, they were accustomed to pouring out water as part of their ceremony on that occasion, he drew attention to the water and he said, He that believes on me... Out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Talking about those who believe on him, giving forth that water of life from their spirits. But it goes on to say there that Jesus was speaking in the future tense because he had not yet been glorified. That is, he had not suffered for our sins, been raised from the dead and ascended back to heaven. And it says there that, that that water of life was symbolic of the Holy Spirit whom those who believe on him would receive. That rock was Christ. I want you to know today that that water of life that flows from Jesus Christ is flowing for you. He said, he who is thirsty, let him drink of the water of life freely. That is his invitation to all of us. Do you understand the parched thirst in your soul? If you're without Jesus Christ, surely you're aware of that. That thirst within you, that longing for, for reality, that longing for something that you can't name, you can't describe, but that emptiness is there. It is Jesus And because he is the smitten rock who gives forth the living water, you may find that emptiness filled by him if you will come to the water of life and drink. See, how do you do that? Well, obviously it's not H2O we're talking about. We're talking about a supernatural, a spiritual sustenance or provision. We receive that by appropriating it. Just as you take a glass of water and you lift it to your lips and drink it to make it a part of your body and to use it. So you must reach out by faith 
and appropriate Jesus Christ. Receive him. Invite him into your life as your Savior and Lord. And in so appropriating him, you will find that inner need satisfied. Because he has been smitten, there is water for you today. Have you drunk deeply of him? Is there water flowing out of you today because the Spirit of God lives in you? As we return now to our text in Exodus chapter 17, let's think together regarding the second trial which dealt with the uplifted rod. Once more the rod is in view. As the enemy came to attack, Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out. Fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself at the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Moses did as Moses told, as Joshua did rather, as Moses told him, and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it came about when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Moses, and or rather Aaron and Hur, supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. <clears throat> it was a great victory for Israel on that day. Amalek descended from Esau through his son Eliphaz. And so these were cousins who were fighting, now quite uh, distant cousins, but nonetheless related through Esau to Abraham. The Amalekites were a nomadic tribe, and they had the reputation of being the most savage and inhumane of all of the Canaanites. They were persistent enemies of Israel until they were finally destroyed by David in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Here in this battle that takes place, the first time now the Israelites have gone to war, gone into battle, we see another picture. It is the picture of spiritual warfare that you and I enter into when we trust Christ. Trusting the Lord Jesus Christ puts us on the opposite side of Satan and his forces. And he attacks. We learn in what happened here the secret to victory. That secret is found in what Moses did when he lifted up the rod of God with his hands. It says in our text that when he held the rod up, Joshua and his soldiers prevailed in the battlefield there in the valley. And when that rod would slip down, then Amalek would prevail and push back the troops of Joshua. Finally, Moses' hands were heavy and they got a rock for him to sit down. And then Aaron and Hur lifted the hands of Moses so that that rod was up until the victory was won. My friend, that uplifted rod speaks of nothing less than prevailing prayer. It is a picture of intercession, of our lifting our hands to God 
in prayer on behalf of our battles and the battles of others around us. Do you find yourself this morning in spiritual struggle in your life? Then your answer, my friend, lies in your prayer life. Do you know some who are going through a difficulty? You can join the battle on their behalf by upholding their hands in prayer. Is there some missionary that you have covenanted to pray for daily and regularly? You enter into the battle on that mission field as you uphold their hands in prevailing prayer. This is the picture that is seen in the uplifted rod. That rod was used on one occasion to impress Pharaoh. On the very first time that Moses stood before him and announced, let God's people go, he threw down the rod and it became a what? A serpent. And he picked it up by the tail and it became a rod again. It pictured the power of God. Later he smote the Nile River with it and it turned to blood. And then he held it over the sea, the Red Sea, and it parted. When you and I enter into prayer and, as it were, lift up that rod, you and I enter into the power of God. I do not understand that, I confess. I do not understand how God's sovereign, eternally declared purposes still need our prayers and depend upon our prayers. But they do. God intends for you and for me to enter into His divine purposes through our prayer life. Prayer is so much more than bowing our knees and asking God to do little things. Oh, that we could understand the dimensions of prayer. Oh, if only our eyes could be opened and we could see. We could see what takes place when we pray. I tell you that the enemy trembles when the weakest Christian is on his knees in sincere prayer before God. There is power in prayer. I have been reading the story of Ivan Moisevich in the book Vanya, which some of you may have picked up during the missions festival. The story of a Russian soldier, a Christian, and how he was willing to stand for his faith in Jesus Christ under the immense pressure of that military system that tried to break him. And so desperate were they to break him that over the process of a couple of years, they finally turned him over to the KGB who tortured him to death for his faith in Christ. And Vanya never broke. I don't understand why God does some things for some people and, and others. He does it differently, not quite as spectacularly perhaps as we think of it. But I want to tell you that Vanya had some unusual experiences. On one occasion, he was able to slip away and he prayed all night. This was during a time of intense pressure and persecution at the hands of his superiors. 
And he found a place that, that was, was normally empty. As I recall, it was an area where they kept uniforms and that sort of thing. And he found that he was able to get back in there and pray, and pray out loud, and the clothing and the other items in that room muffled the sound so that it didn't carry. And that night he was so heavy. And he said, Lord, I don't know if I can, I can take any more. And he began to quote scripture to himself, and he glanced up and looked out the window that was there beside him where he knelt in prayer. And suddenly that sky began to brighten. And he testified in a tape recording that he made just two months before he was finally killed. When he went to visit his family briefly. He testified as a 22-year-old young man that as he looked out that window, he saw an angel who came nearer to him and brighter and then more angels and more and more until the whole sky was lit with angels of many different hues and colors. It was a spectacular and beautiful sight. And he found himself greatly encouraged and strengthened by the presence of these messengers and angels of God who encouraged him that night. And gradually they withdrew until the sky was dark again and then the sun rose. And he began his day. Story after story like that in that book called Vanya. How God encouraged him. My friend, prayer. If you and I could only understand what happens in the realm of spiritual things when we pray. And what does not happen when we don't pray. This rod that is lifted up is nothing less than a reminder to us that prevailing prayer is essential for victory to be won. Would God have allowed Amalek to defeat Israel on that occasion? That is a question we don't have the answer to. But this I know, that as long as Moses was in that position of prayer, trusting God and waiting upon God, there was victory. And I tell you that there will only be victory in the ministry of our church when we, as a people, lift up our hands in faith and prayer to God. And believe God. And when our hands are down, God will allow us to experience whatever comes, even defeats. Because you see, God is not so concerned about our comfort as He is our maturity of faith. We have to move ahead to a third area of lesson that we see. We come now to Exodus chapter 18. Moses receives some very important visitors. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Moses' wife, Zipporah, after he had sent her away, and her two sons, of whom one was named Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land, and the other was named Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was camped at the Mount of God. So this is the same place at Rephidim. Here we see a wise recommendation given by this man whose name was Jethro or Rule, as he is called elsewhere. 
You and I know that Moses' leadership was God-ordained. And generally it was respected among the people of Israel until they came into the times of crisis and trial when they grumbled and rebelled. But generally when the provision was there, they looked to Moses with respect. But eventually Moses' leadership became bottlenecked. He was overtaxed. What was taking place was not efficient. Notice in verse 13, it says, It came about the next day that Moses set to judge the people, that is, to settle their disputes. And the people stood about Moses from the morning until the evening. That was the situation. This was a benevolent dictatorship, let's put it that way. Everyone looked to Moses. He had the final answer on everything. And so if there was a dispute here and an argument over there, they would all come to Moses and they would stand around him all day long until he could hear their case and settle the issue. Remember, we're talking about a population here of over two million people. He's trying to settle the disputes for all of them. And now when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this thing that you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge? And all the people stand about you from morning till evening. Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. And when they have a dispute, it comes to me, and I judge between a man and his neighbor, and make known the statutes of God and his laws. And Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you are doing is not good. You will surely wear out both yourself and these people who are with you. For the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now listen to me. I shall give you counsel and God be with you. You be the people's representative before God and you bring the disputes to God. Then teach them the statutes, the laws, and make known to them the way in which they are to walk and the work they are to do. Furthermore, you shall select out of the people able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain. And you shall place these over them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties and tens, and let them judge the people at all times. And let it be that every major dispute they bring to you, but every minor dispute they themselves will judge, so it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. And so we have here a provision of wisdom in this wise recommendation from Jethro. He, he accurately evaluated what the situation was and then counseled Moses to draw upon a plurality of leadership. He said, you need to organize the people. And he gave certain qualifications <clears throat> which were to be followed. And to them, he was then to delegate various roles in order to spread out the responsibility for the nation. This is a wise recommendation. I have heard people dispute that, believing that this was not the proper thing to do, that it was fleshly wisdom, but I disagree. I believe that this was an answer to Moses and what he needed at that time. Moses could not see it himself. He needed someone to point it out to him. You and I, as we grow in leadership, whether it be in a small church or the church as a whole or over that department 
that we work for or that corporation that we're employed by, as you and I grow in leadership, we have to adjust to a changing role. Now, as is true in the business world, so it is true in the ministry as well, there are some leaders who thrive on being the center of everything. Every issue, every decision, every plan must be brought to them. <clears throat> I had a, have a pastor friend who is basically uh, that way. I don't fault him for it. That's just the way he's put together. He built a, a solid church. He took a church that was about a thousand, and over a period of uh, 18 years, it grew to a membership of almost 3,000, with an attendance of about 2,000. But everything had to come to him. Eventually, as a result of that, two things happened. The work of the church became sluggish and bogged down, and he burned out. And he finally resigned. Now, whether it's in the ministry or, as I say, in your profession in the business world, as you grow in your leadership, in your responsibility, you must adjust to a changing role and learn to delegate. There are some principles that are seen here, and I want just to give them briefly. Uh, Chuck Swindoll has pointed these out to us. Number one, in every responsibility, two factors are present, the essential and the additional. Keep that in mind. And whatever you're doing in your leadership role, there are some things that are obligations for you as a leader that you must do. And then there are other things that are peripheral. They're extracurricular, so to speak. You as a leader must be able to discern the difference between the two. What you have to do and what others are able to do if you let them. And that brings us to principle number two, that as the workload increases, the wise leader restrains his involvement and involves others more. The simple word for this is delegation. A wise leader learns to choose men and women that are trustworthy to whom he can commit responsibilities. And with the responsibility, he's willing to give them authority to carry out what they need to do. He keeps them accountable, but he doesn't keep his fingers in all the pots. He withdraws and lets those who are his delegates carry out what they are to do. That is a basic principle, and I think Moses learns it here, and he learns it well. Then there's a third principle. God's servants are not exempt from the penalties of breaking life's natural laws. In other words, if we grow in our responsibilities, in our leadership, and we refuse to sufficiently delegate, inevitably, eventually, that will bring us to physical, emotional, or mental breakdown. It will. No one can continue functioning under intense pressure and long working hours without cracking in some way. God has designed us that way. 
You may feel that you are a servant of God and God gives you extra strength and grace, and indeed He does. But He does not exempt you from the penalties of breaking life's natural laws. And then the fourth principle is this. Efficiency is increased not only by what is accomplished, but also by what is relinquished. Whenever we believe that we can or should do it all, and at the same time maintain a high standard of productivity and excellence, our mind should reflect, says Swindoll, long and hard on Moses' ineffective leadership methods. Not only did he exhaust himself, but he failed to meet the numerous needs of the Israelites. However, Moses' situation was remedied because he chose to apply some sound advice. And like Moses, only when we began doing the essentials and delegated the incidentals will we experience both relief and success. So some good principles for those of you who are in leadership positions out there in the business world, seen here from the Word of God in Exodus chapter 18. Today, as we camp with the Israelites at Rephidim, it may be that one of these trials is just where you're at. It may be that you are one who is here today struggling under a lot of responsibility that's been laid in your lap by promotion. And you're not sure how to handle it. Well, learn some lessons here. Here's a place to begin. Learn how to wisely delegate to others that responsibility. It could be that you are one who is struggling in your prayer life. Will you learn from what happens with Israel that you must lift up your hands in prayer if there is to be victory? If you would know spiritual victory in your life, in your church, in your Bible study, in your ministry, then it will come through the uplifted hands as we pray. Are you one who today is thirsty of soul? And within you, you long for something that would satisfy. Jesus invites you to come and to drink of the water of life, which he can provide for you because he is the rock who was smitten, the Savior who was crucified for you. Let's pray. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. And I wonder if in the quietness of these closing seconds, if in some measure the Spirit of God has ministered to your life and you need to respond today in a particular way. How about leader? How about it? Are you willing to learn how to lead more effectively? Will you ask God to teach you to be a more efficient, more fruitful leader by applying the principles of his word? Certainly all of us need to apply what is said about prevailing prayer. And is there someone here who needs the water of life? Drink of him today, right now. Trust him right where you're seated. Receive him. And you will never thirst again.
Father, I thank you for the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. For whatever our circumstances may be, whether we camp at Rephidim or Roseville, Jesus is that supernatural rock that is with us throughout the journey. Thank you that we find in him all that we need. Let's sing that little chorus with our heads bowed. Christ is all I need. Christ is all I need. All, all I need. Christ is all I need. Christ is all I need. All, all I need. I know you believe that. You've sung it from your heart. Will you tell him thank you? Will you appropriate him for what you need today? Lord Jesus, truly be all in all to us. Forgive us when we enter into the God-designed tests and fail them. Oh, thank you for your grace that meets us even there in our failure and leads us on. But oh, that we might pass the tests. Oh, that we might grow and mature in our faith. That we might trust you. Today may we find in Jesus the answer to our every need, each of us here. In his name we pray, amen.